Please be seated. What rises up out of this gospel lesson for me is this question, how comfortable are you with the idea that Jesus came to show us a way of being human that does away with empire? I don't mean, <clears throat> pardon me, I don't mean the end of empire entirely, just the part about dependence upon violence and force in order for an empire to flourish. Yes, that's a pretty intense question. But close review of the gospel text itself, historians' observations, and the Bible atlas brought me straight to what I'd like to share with you today. Every major civilization throughout recorded time, inside the Bible and out, has come into power and international recognition through violence and force. Their power and recognition, especially early on, automatically equating with God's favor. And understanding political power as God's favor, albeit becoming more implied than overt over the centuries, has become so regularized that not only has humanity come to accept it as just what has to be, we seem bent on continuing to double down on it, prolonging a painstakingly romanticized perception that the violence and what generates it must be accepted as justifiable means to godly ends. Automatic use of military might to gain or maintain power and prominence, allegedly in God's name. Look, look at the military-industrial complexes supporting all the nations of the world, especially first world nations. Could it really be possible this is Jesus' greatest hope for the world? When I recently shared with a close friend that I think Jesus' dream for us is quite different, I was immediately asked, although for the first time without anger, what, you think he'd rather have anarchy? No. I don't think that's his dream for us either. But looking more deeply into today's gospel and next week's, which together comprise a rather brief scene that is quite interestingly stretched across two liturgical weeks, it appears that Jesus has other ideas, that he isn't bound by binary thinking that insists, if not this, then it surely must be that. We explored last week how in Matthew's Gospel we move from a span where Jesus uses tons of parables to teach into what contemporary scholars have begun to call an even longer series of acted out parables. And I'm beginning to wonder if Jesus' teaching method isn't meant to progress from parables as stage one to acted out parables in the Gospels as stage two to a third stage of learning that involves how even now in the 21st century the same kind of growth in understanding is available to us when we seek meaning, similar to what's found in Jesus' parables, in the acted out parables of our modern lives. Who do people say that I am? If the gospel snapshot before us can be thought of as an acted out parable, then by extension, this question of Jesus' holds great power even today. 
and part of the intent of my opening statements about the incarnation and violence was to note that the answer to Jesus' question throughout time, especially regarding holy wars, has most certainly been variations on this theme. Why, Jesus, you are the reason we're killing other people who don't agree with what we see as your dream for the world. Your dream of love, that is. Now, don't misunderstand me. I'm not trying to mount a campaign to punish legions of warriors across time. Better to create an atmosphere in which to explore with Jesus an array of other options. And as we do, it'll be helpful to also hold in spiritual nearness St. Paul's invitation to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. And I'd like to add the extent to which renewal of the mind can't help but involve the emotions. I suspect one does not have to wonder aloud for very long about the godliness of the military for a whole lot of feelings to become part of renewing the mind. What are the feelings that move around and through your mind as renewal, perhaps somewhat haltingly, comes into focus? How are thinking and feeling intertwined? It seems like Jesus had ideas about this. We're on the verge of his moving with the disciples to the next square, to the very first occurrence of him asking them a direct question about how they feel about him. It is a very significant moment, even more than it first appears, and here's why I say that. He's in the pre-preparation phase, readying for the trip to Jerusalem. Yet inexplicably, Jesus takes the disciples on a long trek north, over a hundred miles north of the city of Jerusalem, to the city of Caesarea Philippi. Why? What is it about this place that makes it important to be there for another of his spiritual data dumps? Named for the emperor and honoring ties with the local tetrarch, Philip, the city has great political significance. In fact, it was the regional capital of the Roman Empire. It also had religious significance. Originally known as Banias, the city had been named for the Greek god Pan, the deity of the spring, and was situated in a region described as having wondrous beauty. Quote, nestled in a charming valley between scenic hills where the river Jordan poured forth from an underground cave, the heights of Mount Hermon were in full view to the north, while from the hills just to the south there was a breathtaking view of the upper Jordan and even the Sea of Galilee in the distance. But the city's most distinguishing feature is said to have been how, in honor of the pagan god, a great many niches had been carved into the sheer cliffs that towered over the city's north end, the niches bearing statues of Greek and Roman gods. One scholar suggesting, you know, like Mount Rushmore. Most scholars agree that there was no reason for Jesus to take his disciples this far north except to act out the political parable we are about to see. There is, however, less scholarly agreement on the apocryphal suggestion that, 
as the disciples walked along with Jesus this hundred miles or so, they, they fell into talking amongst themselves about their recent experiences in Phoenicia and elsewhere, having been sent out as missionaries by their master, about how their message was received, and most of all, how people had regarded their master. So then, if that kind of resonance was even partly in play, and the beautiful topography was blending with ancient homage of pagan gods, and over it all was superimposed all the real-time gravitas of present-day politics, do you suppose Jesus had a grasp of the intertwining of thinking and feeling and the effect of atmospherics? Did he have a kind of sensibility about how these elements would come together in a way that might enhance the renewing of the disciples' minds? Or was it all pretty random? It's a pretty elaborate setup. Why? Because after he asks them who people say that he is, he goes on, of course, to ask, who do you say that I am? At first, Peter seems to understand. It's like he's saying, I get it. Caesar isn't Lord, you are. Caesar's not the son of God, regardless of first century popular use of the term to identify the emperor. He's not, you are. Caesar is not the authority under whom we should organize our lives, you are. You are not just inviting us into a religion that runs alongside Caesar's kingdom. You're inviting us into a new kingdom. It really does seem like Peter is choosing Jesus. But what does that mean? What's this new kingdom about? And what about life will have to change if indeed the Roman Empire and any other is no longer allowed to claim God as source of the violence that established and maintains it. Yes, that's a lot. It is apparently a very long, low arc of change we're talking about. And I say that because the very idea of it still brings great uneasiness. Interrogating our past is one thing in the abstract and quite another in reality. But I'd be surprised if Jesus didn't know this too, and surprised if it wasn't actually part of his plan. By now, Jesus had spent long months training those disciples as to the nature and character of the kingdom of heaven. It would be some time yet, even keeping to Matthew's writing, before Jesus would begin to drill more deeply into the nature of the kingdom as being within you. This event, where Peter identifies him as divine, a brand new concept in Jewish messianism. Heretofore, the Messiah was merely the anointed one, son of David, maybe just a really cool human being. This event, orchestrated by Jesus, did indeed represent a new gateway experience, a gateway for Jesus, who begins a new dialogue that has vastly different power and clarity. A dialogue introducing the distinction between knowing things in a fleshly or worldly way and knowing how different it is to know in the ways of spirit. 
and how recognition of that distinction is available to each of us as we renew our own minds by seeing all our lives as acted out parables. It is a very exciting place we are at in the story of salvation. In this tight little story in Matthew, we're getting a panoramic view, like what Caesarea Philippi offered the disciples, of how the renewing of our minds in ways that bring us closer to God's dream actually works. And just how much that renewal includes our feelings. Next week, we'll close this particular loop with even more of the practical powerful practicalities. Amen. <laughs>